Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And we are lucky enough today to have another amazing guest, Rachel Weisberg. Rachel is unique because she is a staff attorney and the employment rights helpline manager at a nonprofit organization, Equip for Equality. Just some brief background on Rachel. Rachel graduated from University of Michigan. So another Michigan grad. I'm happy to have you here for that. Go blue. Go blue. Roll Tide. <laughs> Rachel also graduated cum laude from Northwestern University School of Law. She has spent most of her career with Equip for Equality, dedicating her uh, legal career to fighting for and advocating for the rights of the disabled or people with disabilities, I should say. But she also worked as a law clerk for a federal judge, uh, as an attorney at Sidley Austin, and with the Attorney General's office. At Equip for Equality, Rachel focuses on litigating disability discrimination rights claims. Rachel, welcome. I'm so honored to be here. Okay, well, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you end up doing employment law and how did you end up in this sort of specific niche area? Sure. So most people who find themselves working in the disability rights field, I think, have some sort of personal connection to disability. Most people have some sort of lived experience, and that's the reason that it piques our interest. And I'm no exception. I grew up, my dad, when I was about three years old, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And as a kid who had a parent with a disability, you know, I realized pretty quickly on all the barriers that the world sometimes presents to people and to their families. So everything from, you know, we would want to go see a movie as a family and there wouldn't be accessible seating, or we would go to a restaurant and we'd have to go through the kitchen. And then the way the wait staff would address my mom instead of my dad, when he could, you know, very clearly order his own meal. So it was just always a huge part of my life. And I always knew that I wanted to do something in the field of disability rights. I loved civil rights classes and college, and I loved how the disability rights movement was so new. And so it was, you know, there were a lot of really interesting issues that kind of came about. But, you know, I will say growing up with a dad with a disability, the one part of our family that became a little bit difficult was he, he worked as a doctor and he loved being a doctor. He was a pediatrician. He loved being with his patients. And the only time I ever saw my dad discouraged was when he ultimately was fired from his job. And, you know, he fight, was fired from his job because he got to the point where he was, you know, having difficulty practicing. And that just totally changed totally changed him. It totally changed our family. And even as a kid, I felt like, you know, this was an injustice and I felt really helpless, right? Because I had heard kind of about these different laws. I didn't really know how they applied. And I just hated watching, you know, how upset he was and how much it really just changed who he was. And I kind of committed at that point that I really wanted to join the force and make sure that I was empowering other people in a way that at the time I felt like I couldn't really do for him. That's a really moving story, Rachel. (laughs) Well, thanks. I don't know about thanks, but I mean, I guess what I'll say is, you know, in the disability rights field, most people have some sort of, again, lived experience, some connection. But even though I 
started working in the disability rights field because of the story with my dad, the more and more I learned, the more and more I realized that disability is everywhere, right? I, I came to recognize that, you know, I could be considered a person with a disability because I have anxiety. You know, that's something that a lot of people don't always associate with disability, but it is, you know, a few years after my, my mom experienced some medical conditions and she also had some issues with her job. You know, it's, it's one of these things that disability affects all of us. And, you know, as long as we live long enough, it's going to affect everybody. Well, and I think that's hoping that's one place where society's evolving a little bit is recognizing there is more essentially to disability. And even with this, you know, podcast, we generally talk a lot about employment issues, but disability, those types of laws affect stuff outside the employment realm, restaurants, movies, things that we don't otherwise think about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of my practice is focused, you know, a lot of my practice is focused on employment. Again, that's kind of where my passion is and where I feel like we can make a lot of difference. But Equip for Equality does such a wide range of different work. And then I personally do a lot of different types of work. So I, we do a lot of work in the criminal justice field, a lot of work with access to businesses and helping folks who want to live in the community do so. So you're right that disability itself is really broad it, it can include people who have all sorts of different disabilities and the field is also really broad it, you know really the americans with disabilities act which is the main law that i work with you know really touches almost everything in our society when i was clerking for a job it's funny you say that i don't i don't want to derail from you because you're the one that we want to hear from today but let's derail realm- max you also have interesting things to say oh but not nearly as interesting and everybody <laughs> hears from me too much already but i was just going to say that i i didn't know in terms of stuff that you wouldn't think about curb cut committee for the city of Chicago, like mm-hmm. how, how sharply the uh, ramps, I, what would the right word be, but the ramps or the angle? They're cur- yeah. They're called curb ramps or slope. Maybe yeah. the word you're looking for. Basically when I was working for a judge in law school, there was a curb cut committee that would meet and had issues or would have to petition the city of Chicago to make sure that the the curbs at different intersections were cut at an angle where people who were wheelchair bound could actually get up there and it wasn't a danger to them that they might slide back or that the curbs weren't you know mm-hmm. the weather changes I, it just I don't know it derails it a little bit I just it's yeah. it's in the realm of stuff that you don't even think about if you have yeah. the use of your legs and you just don't think about it like it, it really does pervade everywhere yeah so I'll, I have a couple a couple comments so the problem with the fact that I love disability rights laws that you say one thing and I have like 10 things I want to respond to. So I have a couple of things to say about curb ramps. One thing I'm going to say, and, and I'm only picking on you, Max, because you corrected your language earlier when you said people with disabilities are dis- disabled people. And I just wanted to say that, you know, in the disability world, language is really evolving. And so there, sure. there are a lot of people out there that use what's called person first language. And they say sure. it's person with a disability, but there are also a lot of people who have kind of been this concept of identity first language, where they say, you know, it's not that my disability is a lot of who I am. And so I am, you know, a disabled person. And so I don't think that you needed to necessarily correct yourself, but you did just use another phrase that I am going to correct you. And it's one of those, it's one of those phrases that, you know, we see a lot in the media, a lot of people say it. And so I'm not doing this to pick on you, but just as an educational point, but the concept of, there's a lot of words that we use that if you take a step back and you think about what the word of the phrase is, it has some sort of negative connotation. And so wheelchair bound is one of those phrases. And I'm definitely guilty of it. Like when I used to talk about my dad before I became part of the disability community, I would use words that are now outdated. But if you think of, I actually do it. I do a lot of trainings and I use the, I use an image. And so if you close your eyes and you think of what 
someone if you use the world wheelchair wheelchair bound what do you think and usually the image that gets conjured up is someone who's like trapped in their wheelchair sure. or like sure. chained to their wheelchair but really think about for wheel for people who have disabilities a wheelchair is an assistive piece of assistive technology that completely enables their independence it's a great thing it's not a bad thing it's not someone that you're bound to and so typically that phrase is one that's you know disfavored in the disability community so so thank that's you one thing that. I will, I will, I will share. No, that's a good thing. I, I appreciate you catching me on that. Cause I think it's important for us to educate each other when, when you have specialized knowledge like yours, Rachel, and you have had the opportunity to think these things through to catch people like me having a slip of tongue, what would yeah. the right term be to use for somebody who needs a wheelchair? Oh, just, oh, someone who uses a wheelchair, wheelchair user. Person right. uses a wheelchair. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so this is the second time now we've had a pet appear on Zoom for our, one of our podcast recordings. Very cool. Great. Very cool. My, my cat wanted to come join us. So the other thing I wanted to say about curb rounds is that the curb rounds are such a good example of this concept called universal design. So oftentimes in our world, there are things that are, and that are, that are first intended to be created for people with disabilities, but there are things that are extremely helpful for everybody. And so curb ramps are such a good example. So, you know, curb ramps, of course, are, you know, cuts in the, in the sidewalk so that if somebody uses a wheelchair, they're able to navigate through the sidewalk and up on up, up through the street in an accessible way. But, you know, I have young kids, I've navigated the city a lot in a stroller. <laughs> and I can say that I would not have been able to do that if it weren't for these curb ramps, right? Or people who are traveling and who have suitcases or folks who are carrying heavy packages. I mean, there's all sorts of examples of this concept called universal design. So you know, that curb ramps are one example. There's so many I could go on and on and on about that, but it's a, you know, an important concept in the disability community and one that I thought I would just flag for everybody. I really appreciate that when I go on a long run mm -hmm. and I need to yeah. get on the sidewalk or, yeah. yeah. So as another example of this, like when you're at an intersection and there's like sounds coming from the yeah. lights or from the signals to let you know how much mm -hmm. time you have left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, you know, some of these things also, you know, Okay, so what you're talking about right now are, you know, or audio, um, they're like talk talking crosswalks and they're intended for folks who are blind so that they're able to, you know, navigate how far they can, you know, go across the street and how much time they have. So yeah, that's certainly something else that is helpful for, for people. And, you know, that's a part of the ADA. So there's different, the ADA is, again, is a really broad law. There's different sections of the ADA that apply to different kind of parts of society. And so what we all do here a lot is under this under the section called Title I, and that's all employment. But there's a title called Title II, and that applies to pretty much every program, service, or activity by, of a state and local government. And this is an area that is just an extremely broad area, and we're always still getting more and more court cases to help us understand exactly what that means. And so there's actually been a lot of recent court cases saying, well, do we need to make sidewalks accessible? And is a sidewalk a program, service, or activity of a state or local government? And courts pretty universally, universally have said, yes, they are, and that's really broadened it. So another kind of issue that we're seeing more and more of is this concept of accessible pedestrian crossings. And so that's a great example on it. Are there other examples in which like technology has kind of evolved the law in, in this area? Yeah, totally. So a lot of areas, but you know, so when I was in law school in 2005, we were given a moot court 
question. And for, you know, the lawyers who are listening, when you get a moot court question in law school, you're typically given an area where there's some sort of legal dispute or circuit split. And the question that I was given was whether, um, whether a, a, a business that operates exclusively on the internet is covered by the ADA, whether it falls within this other part of the ADA called Title III of the ADA, and that's the part that applies to all sorts of private businesses. And if you look at the text of the Title III of the ADA, it says that it applies to places of public accommodation. And so, you know, a lot of folks were out there saying, well, the internet is not a physical place of public accommodation. That's clearly not what, you know, the ADA intended. And then there's a whole lot of other people out there, including disability advocates saying, what are you talking about? If we're going to exclude this entire marketplace from, you know, these disability rights laws, like that's not going to achieve the broad mandate of non-discrimination that the ADA intended to, to achieve. And so, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth and there is still a slight of some of a circuit split out there, but that's definitely one example of, you know, technology advancing and the ADA and courts trying to, trying to catch up and figure out how it applies. I think there are attorneys actually who just, you'd probably have a better sense of this, just file class actions based on websites that aren't compliant with ADA requirements. So there's always, I, I think in every field, right, there's some <laughs> yes. people that I don't know. I, I guess I, in the ADA world, there are a lot of organizations that file a lot of lawsuits, but the underlying lawsuits are all very valid, right? So mm-hmm. yes, we're, there's organizations that file a lot of lawsuits or there's private attorneys, but the ADA is, is written in a certain way that there's no, there's no like ADA police, right? So a lot of times clients call me and they're like, this business isn't physically accessible or this website isn't accessible. And there's nothing that you can do about that other than complain to a government agency or file a lawsuit, right? Or, you know, you could do informal advocacy, but it is, it is a civil right that has to be enforced. And so, um, you know, my personal view is that there's nothing wrong with organizations that file a lot of lawsuits so long as the underlying claim is still certainly, you know, is, is still a valid one. What's, what's unfortunately happened a lot in our field is that there are some attorneys out there that have filed a lot of lawsuits and don't either don't really care about the underlying issue or, you know, are, are, are willing to settle for some, re, for some attorney's fees and then they don't care about the actual underlying accessibility issue being fixed. So that's obviously not something that's good for people with disabilities or, you know, plaintiff's attorneys that are trying to do the right thing or businesses. How does it work? Let's say like, you know, there is a curve that's not the right slope or a business is not accommodating um, to enough people and you want to file a lawsuit. What are the remedies? Is it just like specific performance, like fixing the issue? Yeah, exactly. So, so it it differs based on if you're filing under that title two state or local government or that title three place of public accommodation. So if you're going after, or if, if you're trying to challenge a barrier to accessibility in a private business, the only remedies that you can seek are non-monetary injunctive relief. So getting the accessibility barrier removed, maybe some policies or training and then attorney's fees. If you are filing a lawsuit to try to remedy something from a state and local government, there, there is the availability to um, obtain compensatory damages. In that case, you usually have to prove some sort of intent um, to do so. Rachel, you mentioned in that last answer a little bit of how sometimes one of the things you can do is non-litigation advocacy or non-legal advocacy to sort of help change these things. And obviously something other than just a website or some business that isn't doing that. What 
what chunk of your, what percentage of your work is like that? And what is that typically, what usually leads to you doing that? And what does that look like usually? Yeah. So, you know, litigation makes up a very small percentage of my work and really a a fairly small percentage of a cook for qualities work. I think our bread and butter and the vast majority of the things that we do fall within one big bucket. We, you know, we call it self-advocacy assistance, but it's essentially folks will call us and they have questions about their legal rights and we'll answer those questions. And so I manage a program called the employment rights helpline. And the goal of the Employment Rights Helpline is to empower people to advocate for themselves in the workplace. I have found my my own experience that once lawyers get involved in employment situations, things tend to go downward very quickly, right? <laughs> and that's usually my fault. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm at, I'm at fault a lot of times too. And you know, frankly, there's a lot of times that lawyers do have to get involved, but there are a whole lot of situations where if an employee knows the right buzzwords to say, or if you know an employee is counseled to approach a situation a certain way, then that can save their job. It can help them get a different accommodations. And so for me personally, that's one of my favorite parts of my job. I love talking to people, counseling them, helping equip them with the tools that they need to ask for a reasonable accommodation in the workplace or challenge an overbroad request for medical information or try to address their, any sort of performance issues, you know, by getting the accommodations that they need. And so that's, that's a huge part of, of what Equip for Equality does. And, you know, we do it a lot in the employment world, but we do it in terms of other types of services. But of course, there are always times where despite our best efforts and our clients' best efforts, you know, we're not able to resolve it without legal intervention. You know, we generally tend not to rush into litigation if we feel like there's another way to address the situation. And so what that looks like, a lot of times I'll send letters to employers or to businesses, you know, we'll, we have a lot of clients who are deaf, for example, and have, and and use American Sign Language to communicate. And, you know, there's all sorts of situations where they would need an an American Sign Language interpreter. Something very common is like a healthcare provider. So somebody needs to go to the doctor and they need an interpreter to do so. You know, it's really, it would be a pretty common thing for us to do to send a letter to that doctor and say, hey, you know, last time whoever patient went to see you, you didn't give them an American language interpreter. I don't know if you've heard of this law, the ADA, here's what it requires. Please do it moving forward. Because, you know, again, it's better for everybody if we're able to get it resolved, then the person can go to the doctor and then, you know, all all sorts of better things happen. But, you know, again, there are a lot of situations where that either doesn't happen or we at we feel that we need to file some sort of either administrative complaint or, or lawsuit to make sure that individuals' rights are being upheld. So one cool thing I guess I didn't realize before is when you're filing lawsuits, you're essentially seeking an injunction. It's essentially going to be on behalf or in benefit of multiple people and probably not just for the one person you're filing on behalf of. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of different disability rights issues have a systemic impact, right? So if we're going to reach out to a doctor on behalf of one client who needs an ASL interpreter, we're probably going to try to convince them to establish a policy so that every time somebody who's deaf needs an ASL interpreter, an ASL is American Sign Language, that they, you know, would either get one or they'd go through a process of evaluating whether it's something that's that's needed in that particular situation. Same thing, I have a, I've had a lot of cases on behalf of folks who have service animals. Generally speaking, in those types of cases, you know, we will be seeking some sort of 
monetary relief to compensate our clients for the experience and humiliation they endured by being kicked out of a store with their service animal. But, you know, other things that we're trying to do are have, make sure that the store or restaurant or whoever has a nice service animal policy um, and has trained all of its employees about the rights of people who use service animals. And then I think just, I guess, to go back to the curb ramp conversation that we were having earlier, I mean, certainly any sort of relief that's going to look like a removal of a physical barrier, that's going to, of course, have a systemic impact, right? And that's one that, you know, you build a ramp that's going to help everyone for future generations to come. Can you talk generally just a little bit about what the ADA is, who who's okay. covered by it, what, what it, what it does for people, I guess, to bring it back to employment in an employment law setting more generally? Yeah, sure, sure. So the ADA is a comprehensive civil rights law that protects the rights of people with disabilities. It has a number of different aims. One of them is, you know, equal opportunities, full integration into society, self self or economic self-sufficiency. And, you know, the ADA was passed in 1990 and if you th- if, if you think about it, you know, it's a pretty new civil rights law. We think of all these other civil rights laws that were passed um, in the 60s. I mean, the ADA was passed within many people's lifetime. And so, you know, it is something that advocates worked long and hard for, and it is still something that we still need to fight to make sure that it's being appropriately interpreted and applied. Okay. So what, who does the law protect? I think that was one of the questions you asked. Okay. So who does the law protect? (laughs) It was a bad deposition question. Somebody would have objected to three at one time. I would object to a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can like, but, talk but you, about the you do that anyway, dude. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, the problem is, and I'm a huge <laughs> ADA nerd and I could probably just like talk in a narrative style about the ADA for the next three hours, which Go. probably nobody wants to hear. So cut me off at any time. So the ADA applies to the, de- basically the definition of who the ADA covers is a person with a disability. And that's essentially defined in a couple different ways. The, f- the first group of people that it covers are people who have what's called an actual disability. So somebody who has an underlying impairment and who's that impairment substantially limits a, a major life activity. And so an example could be if somebody is blind or that maybe they have the underlying impairment that kind of caused their blindness, you know, and then if they substantially limit a major life activity, they're substantially limited because they're unable to see, or that's a, that's a good one. They're unable to see. Um, and then that's, that same sort of concept also, of course, applies to people who have mental health disabilities or developmental disabilities. And so it's supposed to be a really broad definition and it's supposed to impact a lot of people who have, you know, medical conditions that cause functional limitations. But the ADA also applies to people who have been regarded as or perceived to have a disability. And that's, I think, a really important concept because what what that essentially means is that even if you yourself do not have an impairment or you yourself don't have an impairment that's substantially limiting, so long as you're treated differently because someone else thinks that you do, you're still protected by the law. And the idea behind that part of the ADA is that sometimes it's the myths and perceptions of people with disabilities that are more disabling than people's actual conditions, right? And that's what we're aiming to protect. It's a civil rights law. How does the ADA intersect with like cannabis then? Yeah. And like medical cannabis and stuff like that? Is that a new, <laughs> should we just do a different podcast on it's that? It's a whole <laughs> podcast about, about marijuana and I can go on for a really long time. So, okay. So the, pro- the problem, I don't know about the problem. So the ADA is a federal law, right? And federally cannabis is 
illegal under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. So when the ADA was passed, it was 1990, it was part of the war, the war on drugs. There's actually an exception to um, the definition of disability that says that if you're a current user of illegal drugs, then you are not covered by the law. And then the way that you would define who is what illegal drugs are, you're supposed to look at the Federal Controlled Substances Act. So unfortunately, for people with disabilities who use medical marijuana lawfully under state law, there's no ADA protections. There's a dis- there's a dispute. And I think there's arguments kind of on both sides about whether the state um, medical marijuana laws here in Illinois would protect people with disabilities from employment discrimination. But unfortunately, the federal ADA laws, it's, that's pretty clear. Every case that's looked at this has said, no, there's a clear exception. And I think until that's changed at a federal level, it's probably what's going to stick. So we'll probably get all 50 states and Washington, D.C. individually and separately legalizing it themselves before the federal government can get its act together and do yeah. that. Who knows? Who knows? I want to follow up on one of the terms you've used quite a few times as we've talked, Rachel, and that's accommodation. And I I don't know if you said reasonable accommodation, but let's say somebody does hypothetically have a disability or is regarded as having a disability at work and they ask their employer to accommodate them. I, I always come up with some clunky metaphor or example for my clients. So I'll let you do that. Does the employer automatically have to give them what they're asking for or they say that they need? Well, the direct answer to that is, is, is no, an employer doesn't automatically need to do it. To t- just take a quick step back. I mean, I think the thing that's unique about the ADA when you look at it versus other anti-discrimination laws is that the ADA recognizes that sometimes we need to do more than just treat everyone exactly the same to ensure that we're providing equal employment opportunities for people with disabilities. And so that's where we have this concept of reasonable accommodation, right? So it's sometimes we need to do something a little bit different, a little bit more to ensure that we're providing equal access. So a reasonable accommodation is just any change in the workplace, to an application process, to the terms and conditions of your job, to, again, ensure equal employment opportunities. So to answer your question directly, if an employee asks an employer for a reasonable accommodation, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to get it, give it. An employer is required to provide an effective accommodation subject to certain defenses. They don't necessarily need to provide someone's preferred accommodation. And so the whole, the idea behind this is like, is really smart and it's really thoughtful. And that is that every, every situation is different. Every individual is different. What's going to work for somebody might not work for somebody else. What might work in someone's, for someone's employer may not work for a different employer, but I think in practice, it, it can be a little bit tricky to navigate, which again is why I really like working at the helpline to help people navigate some of these things. But what the ADA says is that an employer can't just say no, they have to engage in what's called the interactive process. So I'm a problem solver. I love it having to talk to people and come up with solutions. And the ADA is really has got this very unique concept where the ADA actually requires employees and employers to have a conversation and try to come up with a solution. And so although an employer doesn't have to say yes, they should never just say no. An employer can say, I don't think this is going to work because of this, but let's talk about it and let's try to find another solution. And I think where employers get themselves in a lot of trouble is when, when they just say no and they don't explore other alternatives because, you know, yeah, there's a rare situation where there's not a solution, but I'd say with a little creative thinking with, you know, looking at some resources that are out there, almost every situation has some sort of, you know, answer if we just try hard enough to come up with it. 
I will vouch for Rachel, the problem solver. I've had a couple of ADA cases myself over the last year, and Rachel has probably been the difference between me spending a lot of hours trying to figure this out for myself and having somebody who lives and breathes this stuff being like, oh, why don't you just try A, B, and C? And I'm like, wow, that was that was way faster than me trying to do that myself. Well, I don't think you're going to have enough, yourself enough credit. I think you've come with some very good ideas. But for any you know attorneys out there who are dabbling in the ADA world, you know, I... I I do kind of feel like it is, I'm always happy to consult with private attorneys who are doing ADA work. You know, it's in our interest for there to be good ADA decisions out there. It's in our, you know, I I care a lot about employees with disabilities and I, and I am always happy to, to chat about your case or help brainstorm. I do want to table the employment side of this for a second. You mentioned earlier, you do some criminal justice stuff too. So what does that entail? How does that intersect with disability rights? Well, let me tell you about a case that I've been working on for many, 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 many years. It's a case I started working on in 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think I'm, and I still work on it almost every day. So we represent a class of individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing, who are incarcerated within the Illinois Department of Corrections. So, you know, it's interesting because we first brought this case back many, many, many years ago, we had a bunch of clients who used American Sign Language. And just like I was giving an example of some of our clients that would go to the doctor and not understand what was happening because they didn't get an American Sign Language interpreter, a lot of our clients were incarcerated and were going to really important medical appointments or they were going to disciplinary hearings where they were then being sent to segregation and they weren't able to communicate effectively at all. Um, I had a lot of clients who didn't have access to hearing aids or, you know, Every day, the guards would announce that it was time to have breakfast. They'd say, ciao. But, you know, my clients didn't hear that because no one told them and there was no way for them to hear that. And so we filed, Equip for Equality filed a class action lawsuit with a number of other organizations, Uptown People's Law Center, which is a wonderful nonprofit, the National Association of the Deaf. And then we've been lucky enough to have an incredible pro bono partner with Winston and Strawn. And so we filed this lawsuit it took a couple of years to develop. We filed it in 2011. We litigated it pretty heavily for years. And then we reached a class settlement in July, um, July 26, which is the anniversary of the ADA, July 26 of 2018. That's so cool. And, and so now we're in the settlement implementation stage. And we, as the class council, are working collaboratively with the court to essentially monitor the Department of Corrections compliance. We now have a class of 1,600 people. There are folks both who, you know, they're, there are a lot of people who are hard of hearing who need access to those visual alerts or hearing aids. And so, yeah, I guess that's, that's one example of the type of criminal justice work that we do, but Equip for Quality does a lot more than that. We, we have another class action. It's called the Rasho case. And it's, we represent folks who are incarcerated, who have been diagnosed with serious mental illness. And it's about access to mental health care in the correctional system. We have a number of single plaintiff cases on behalf of folks who need accommodations in the criminal justice or in, you know, need accommodations in prison and aren't given access to them. So we do, you know, I think it's been something that's been developing, but at this point we have, you know, a lot of different types of criminal justice work going on at Equip for Quality. That's that's really noble. I I have a technical question about that because now I'm curious because I you know, when you're in federal court, you, when we used to get to go to court as lawyers, which there was a time when we did, and some of us used to complain, but now I really miss it because I actually don't, I love virtual court. 
<laughs> I love some virtual court. I, I do sometimes think there's value in getting to see your opponent or your colleagues face to face. But we have different we have different colleagues and opponents. I get along <laughs> with a lot of my opponents, sir. But prisoners do end up filing a lot of lawsuits, many of which, by the way, are quite meritorious because as Rachel has just described, there's a lot of injustices in the well, that was a weird, weird choice in the justice system. But I'm sort of curious, are those lawsuits brought pursuant to the ADA or are those lawsuits also brought under Section 1983, you know, as oh. civil rights lawsuits like that? Or is it both? Yeah, that's right. Both. We, we brought them under both. So our, you know, for the Holmes case, I think that kind of the core of the case was brought under the ADA. And there's also a law called the Rehabilitation Act, which is is kind of the predecessor to the ADA. It's a civil rights law that was passed in 19. 19- um, 73 that protects the rights of people with disabilities, but it was limited only to, to institutions or place entities that receive federal financial assistance, including obviously the court, uh, the correctional system. But we also had claims for a number of different constitutional claims that were brought under section 1983 as well. The Rasho case, on the other hand, I think the core of that case is really a constitutional case. And it kind of had these also ADA 504 components, but that wasn't necessarily the essence of that case. Rachel, you and Equip for Equality do a lot of really good work. How can people reach Equip for Equality and how, if somebody wanted to be, you were going to ask a question on it. Yeah, I was going to back up for a second. We probably should have done this like half an hour ago. What is Equip for Equality? (laughs) We probably should have done this at the beginning. Equip for Equality is a private not-for-profit organization. We are the protection and advocacy for the state agency for the state of Illinois. Essentially, every state has one organization that's designated by the state's governor to be this type of organization, and we are that for the state of Illinois. We were established in 1985 and have continued to grow since then. We have, we have, we basically provide free legal services to people with disabilities on issues related to their disability. And we do that in a number of different ways. So we have three legal teams. One legal team focuses exclusively on um, abuse and neglect issues. One legal team focuses on special education rights for children. And then there's the team that I'm on, which is the civil rights team, which does a lot of anti-discrimination work, self-determination work. When there are some individuals out there who are that feel that they do not need to be. We sometimes will work with them to have their rights restored. So that's what one of the things we mean by self-determination. And then also community integration. We are a class council on three class actions to help people with disabilities live more independently in this in the community as opposed to in larger institutions. You're basically created between the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA. Yes, that's when our organization started. Yes, exactly. That's incredible. Rachel, thank you for coming on to talk to us about all of this. If folks do want to get involved with Equip for Equality, because I'll vouch for that helpline is a really easy way to get involved. It does not take a long time. It's a great way to help and just spend, it's like, what, an hour a month? Yeah, so there's a ton of different ways to get involved, and it really depends on your interest and availability. We have everything from you know, we have lawyers and law students that do legal research for us on like a project to project basis. Um, I will plug the Employment Rights Helpline, which I think is a wonderful way for folks to contribute on a pro bono basis. So essentially we 
we, we give you an hour training. We teach you everything you need to know. And then you help by doing the initial client interviews and provide a listening ear for people who are going through, you know, some difficult employment situations. And then we either coach you through giving some advice or we then take it over and handle it from there. But it's something that you can sign up for as much or as little as you want. So as Max said, we have some volunteers that do one call every few months and we have some volunteers that do one call a week. So it's something that you can you can do at your convenience. And then we also have individuals that provide pro bono assistance, you know, all the way, like I, I mentioned our, our homes class action, we've had pro bono counsel on that for the last 11 years on a class action. So it's, we really have a wide range and we have a lot wide range of cases. We have a lot of folks that like to help with our special ed work. And there's a lot of different types of civil rights work. So to get involved, definitely check out our website, equipforequality.org. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram and anyone is also really more than welcome to reach out to me directly. You can find me on Equip for Equality's website, or you can just email me at rachelw at equipforequality.org. There are many Rachels, so make sure to say Rachel W. And we'll make sure that Rachel and Equip for Equality's respective contact information is in our show notes and that people can find it on our website. And are you also on Neela's like find a lawyer or are you on the website there too or no? I think I am. Okay. We're happy to let you rant or talk or narrate however the ADA came to be and how we got here anytime. So thank you so much. Yeah, this is really great. Thank you. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.